Hey, everybody, this is Chuck Marone with Strong Towns. The DNA of your community is made up of many different things, but one of the primary ones is the financial, the way that we're able to finance different types of projects. And oftentimes we're frustrated because, well, it's easy to get a single family home and it's easy to, to finance a development of single family homes. Trust me, as an engineer, I, I saw some of the, the most ridiculous things and some of the most ridiculous people uh, get financing to do uh, to do single family home projects. It's relatively easy, but it's much much harder to get financing to do other things, particularly in those mid range. You know, we we see the big developer able to do the twenty story tower. Uh, what we struggle with are those two, three, four story mixed use kind of buildings. The the things that were for for generations the backbone of wealth in our communities now are largely not financeable. Why is that? This week, we're going to answer that question, and we're going to take a look at a report put together by the Regional Plan Association called The Unintended Consequences of Housing Finance. I have the authors of that report on the podcast today. Tomorrow, you're going to hear from uh, someone who tried to do a mixed-use project and the experiences that they had. Later on this week, we're going to talk to a small developer who does this kind of work and has struggled against the odds to make it happen. And then we've got a, 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 a kind of policy walk on a, a little bit later to talk about some of the impacts in terms of affordable housing, gentrification, displacement, and, and other things that are a result and a consequence of these kind of minute little policies uh, that we have uh, set up with the uh, federal housing finance. Stick with us this week, strongtowns.org forward slash housing. Uh, we've got all kinds of stuff going on in the blog here on the podcast. Uh, I, I think you'll find it really entertaining and informative. And if you do, please make sure and pass it on to someone else. We're trying to get this message out to as many people as we can, and we need your help to do that. Thanks, everybody. You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. everybody. This is Chuck Marone with Strong Towns. This week, we're taking a look at federal housing policy, specifically some very narrow provisions the Federal Housing Administration uses to qualify a mortgage for federal insurance. These otherwise innocuous provisions put in place during the Great Depression have been shaping the U.S. market for housing ever since. Joining me today on the line is Christopher Jones and Sarah Serpis of the New York-based Regional Plan Association, Together, they've written a report titled The Unintended Consequences of Housing Finance. Christopher and Sarah, welcome to the Strong Towns Podcast. Thank you. Glad to be a part of it. Thanks. Really excited to be here. Talk a little bit about the Regional Plan Association and what makes you all there interested in federal housing policy. Well, we're a nonprofit research and planning organization. Um, we've been around since the 1920s. Uh, you know, we were the first organization in the country to actually produce a metropolitan-wide plan. So we focus primarily on the New York area, uh, you, know, you know, most of downstate New York, big parts of New Jersey and Connecticut. Uh, but we really have a, a national perspective because a lot of the issues that we've been dealing with for the last 90 years, you know, are you know, kind of trace the history of, of you know, urban development in, in America. So, uh, you know, 
even going going back to uh, you know to the 1930s and and into the post-war period, you know, we produced plans that first laid out much of the infrastructure for uh, you know for the uh, for the New York region to grow and develop that became models for other parts of the country and then we uh, we were one of the first to address issues of suburban sprawl uh, from a metropolitan basis starting in the 1960s and the and the issues of, of urban flight and and decline so and we have been addressing sustainable development in in various ways uh, you know over the decades you know looking at everything from housing and transportation to environmental issues and, and the economy and certainly you know now we're in a very different period than what we've uh, been looking at for most of the post-war period. You know, cities are in the ascendant. Uh, you know, a lot of older suburbs are are declining. Uh, you know, people are looking for uh, more you know walkable urban types of types of places. So this creates a whole different set of set of issues that we're trying to address with a uh, you know a new regional plan that we're in the process of developing that will uh, that will probably come out about a year from now. The report you guys put together was really good. I, I, I've been aware of the issues that you discussed for a while, but the way you laid it out and the way you presented it and then tied it in to kind of the bigger market trends was, I think, really helpful. And just for the people listening, uh, let them know that if you go to the podcast, we'll have a link to this report. I strongly encourage you to look at it. Could one of you talk about the specific rules you looked at and Kind of give us some history and background of of why they came about, why they are put in place, and why they still exist. Sure. Um, so specifically, we were looking at the federal programs and rules that support the creation of multifamily housing, um, and how these limit the amount of commercial or non-residential space that's allowed in these developments. Um, so these are sections of the National Housing Act, um, and also Freddie, uh, Freddie Mac and Franny May guidelines for ensuring these mortgages for these developments. Um, so all of these. Regulations were established in the mid-20th century, as Chris mentioned. Uh, things have changed since then. Uh, this was a time when both planning theory and practice really supported the separation of uses, keeping residential separate from commercial and industrial separate from all of the others. Um, so this separation was intended to protect taxpayers from the riskier commercial loans, um, even though these regulations were contrary to the developments that were being seen across Main Street America. Um, so these regulations we believe uh, we're just a, a construct of the time. So let me, let me make sure I get this because you're essentially saying that, that we, at one point Americans stepped back and said, this stuff that we've been building for a, a long time is too risky. And the, the new direction that things are going is to spread everything out. And so we're going to write these loan requirements or these insurance requirements to, do something brand new, which we thought was less risky. Is that what you're saying? Well, I think it's it's the uh, I think the rules were set up to protect investments, federal investments in housing, and and that's you know and that's certainly a legitimate goal of these of these rules, and certainly commercial uh, you know commercial development has a different risk profile than than housing. So the intent was. Let's not make our housing investments any more risky by by putting a cap on the amount of uh, of non-residential uh, you know, space or income that can be derived from these projects. You know whether it's 
uh, you know, and, and some of these programs, it's, it's, uh, it's limiting the amount of square footage that can go to, you know, retail or community services or any type of non-residential development. Uh, and uh, but there's also a limit on the amount of income that can be derived from the project for those. And these were set at levels of you know, uh, you know, 10 to 20, 10 to 25 percent. Uh, you know, HUD has since loosened those for some projects, so they're now kind of at a more at a range of about 15 to 25 percent. But when you think about what the effects of these are, is that if you're limiting, uh, you know, non-residential space to that percentage of uh, of a project, you're basically eliminating, uh, you know, uh, loan guarantees for any project which is, you know, more than, uh, which is uh, really less than five or six stories. Um, so much of urban America, Main Street America, are, you know, three and four story buildings with ground floor retail. Uh, you know, that's the type of, uh, of development that is also more in demand now, um, but those but if you have a restriction of, you know, 20 to 25 percent, uh, you know, of a project, you can't finance a, uh, you know, a project which is a, uh, say, a, a you know, four-story residential building with, uh, you know, with with stores on the on the ground floor. So that's re so it's so it was it was the right intent to kind of limit risk. But what we but what we've seen with these is that you know it's 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 really kind of preventing the market from delivering what people are looking for now, and also from some recent research that's that's been done, uh, you know we've seen that there, that you know loan defaults are actually lower in places with these type of with this type of mixed use development than they are in. Uh, in single-use residential neighborhoods, so uh, so I think what uh, you know what we're what we're asking for is to loosen these rules, to let the uh, you know to let the you know the market and the and, and underwriters really determine what's the real risk of these projects, so that we can start delivering more of what people are looking for. I'd like to understand a little bit how the rules have really shaped the market for housing. Could you walk me through? If if I'm if I want to buy a single family home, what's the process? And, and if I want to buy uh, a, a mixed use building to live in and get a, a loan, what what would be the process for that? How how would that be different? How would that be different under um, than uh, how would it be different for a multifamily building than a single family building? Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd like to get a sense of the way that these financing mechanisms change the approach that, that a, a normal person would have to take to go get a loan. Right. I mean, these are mostly loans that go to a developer to uh, develop or redevelop a multifamily building. Um, so if, if you are an owner of, you know, a, uh, you know, a building with, uh, you know, with, uh, you know, six or seven units or you're a developer who wants to create more of that type of uh, more of that type of, of you know building and you know and housing stock whether you want to kind of reinvest in existing buildings or create new ones uh, you have to get financing for it so uh, you know so for the so uh, you know so you have your project you've gone through all of the everything it takes to uh, you know get get zoning approvals and the design and all of that and you're trying to get financing for the project and uh, you know, and it's it. Uh, you know, not only will the um, uh, you know will 
you not be able to have the uh, you know the loan guarantees from the federal government, which makes uh, you know which makes it you know much more uh, you know economically feasible to develop these. But also the private lenders that you go to, they take their signals from a lot of these federal programs. So you know they look at these uh, and say, well, if you're not passing muster for a uh, you know for federal guidelines, then it must be a risky project. So you can't get the financing that way. So it's it's uh, you know, so it's, it's it's particularly difficult for uh, for small developers who don't have the uh, you know who don't have the you know either the you know the patient capital or the or the ability to really uh, you know to really kind of work through some of these issues or or cobble together the different types of financing that you do that you need to really make these projects viable. I I, I want to delve a little bit into that secondary market because. It, it, for me, I've I've gotten a mortgage, and and I actually got a mortgage <laughs> back in 2000 when I was in in graduate school, when I had a a, a home already. It, it was actually cheaper to get a, a, another house than it was to rent property uh-huh. for for a bizarre reason. Um, and and I was you know I I actually bought less of a house than what they told me I qualified for. I've also looked into just getting a loan on a a mixed use property and. Essentially, the bank said, you know, we're, we're going to need huge amounts down. We're going to need a uh, higher interest rate. You're not going to be able to get a 30-year term. What are, what are some of those differences, and, and, and how does that relate to a, a secondary market? Well, a secondary market is, is really when, uh, when the original lender will, will uh, you know, basically sell, uh, you know, sell your mortgage or sell, or sell your loan to, uh, you know, to a to another institution, it, it keeps it, it's what keeps capital flowing, um, so that uh, you know so that the finance system can make more loans, uh, you know, for you know for homes, whether they're single family or or multifamily homes with it. And what happens is that uh, you know it if there aren't enough uh, you know uh, you know loans of a particular type, it's difficult to create that. Secondary market to keep that capital flowing. So there's, uh, you know, so if there aren't enough uh, of loans to these type of smaller mixed-use projects, uh, you know, it's very hard for you know any financial institution, whether it's a private bank or uh, you know or a, a national institution like Freddie Mae or uh, you know or like Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac to uh, you know to kind of to you know, have a market to sell these to sell these products. So that makes it much more expensive. Uh, you know, for uh, you know, for you know, either the initial lender or uh, you know, or a community bank or whoever it is to uh, you know to make these loans, and that makes the loans themselves more expensive. Your report is titled "Unintended Consequences." I'd like you to talk a little bit about what some of those real-world consequences are that I'm sure was not thought of at the time and but over the years have kind of come to the fore and now particularly today are really really urgent problems sure uh, let me start and sorry you can you can add on <laughs> uh, because that's really where where a lot of this is i mean i think the again the the uh the intent of these programs is certainly to uh you know to uh you know to support you know home development uh you know in the united states and particularly for these uh, for these multifamily uh, programs to support, uh, you know, uh, you know, both both rental and and 
co-op and condo developments and, and for a for a broad range of broad range of income. And you know, so one of the unintended consequences of this is that we're actually building less housing because of them. Um, so that there are a number of projects that uh, you know that would be viable from uh, from a market standpoint that you know aren't moving forward because the uh, because it's so difficult to get the financing in, in place for them. Uh, there's also a uh, you know the uh, you know the uh, the unintended result that a lot of these communities are uh, you know are low income communities. If you look at you know where uh, you know much of uh, much of America lives, and particularly uh, you know much of the nation's poor, they live in uh, they live in, in communities with uh, you know with three or four story buildings on. You know, older main streets. Uh, you know, they're uh, you know they're often in uh, you know in in disrepair and you know have an entire cycle of disinvestment going on. So if if there's uh, so the intent certainly of, of many uh, you know federal programs is to reinvest in these communities to improve the housing stock, to improve the uh, you know the neighborhood environment, and this makes it much more difficult to invest in those areas. It also makes it more difficult to uh, add more affordable housing in uh, in you know more affluent communities because you know these are the you know again these are the sorts of uh, you know projects that you know are appropriate to uh, you know to uh, you know many suburban downtowns of low scale places where there's uh, you know certainly uh, you know a need for more affordable housing. This makes it difficult to to finance. You know those sorts of projects to get those in place. So you're really kind of, uh, you know, you know, you know, unintentionally, you know, reinforcing this uh, segregated pattern that we have of, uh, you know, of, of poor communities with, uh, you know, with, you know, with years of disinvestment, and you know, other places that, uh, you know, where there's a demand for these, uh, you know, for these types of, uh, for these types of, of buildings and and homes. Um, that can't, and where there'd be an opportunity to uh, create more mixed-income environments that can't move forward. It's always seemed to me like it would be pretty easy from a financing standpoint to go into a neighborhood that has disinvestment and, and where they're struggling and build a single-family home because it's fairly easy to finance that. But that kind of home doesn't either A, fit with that neighborhood, uh, or B, be at a price point that makes sense for that neighborhood. Is that, a, a, in a sense, a, a big part of the problem here that we just are not able to finance the kind of, or easily finance the kind of things that we need to be building to help these neighborhoods kind of get back on their feet? Yes, that's exactly right. I mean, I think the you, know, you have to have something which is, you know, you know, economically viable to uh, you know to you know to you know to clear for a developer to do it, and and if you're uh, you know if you the harder you make it to uh, you know to develop financing for it, the you know the more expensive that product tends to be, and it also if you're if you're looking at you know at the government subsidizing some of these developments, you actually have require more subsidy if you're creating a more expensive product for it. And then from the community's perspective, it makes it very difficult for, as you said, for contextual development to come into these areas. Um, it's the entire street is from 
the earlier era of uh, maybe three-story developments with uh, ground floor retail, it's very hard for a developer to come in and build that same sort of contextual development there. You know, we're often told, and I, I'm I'm from Minnesota. Uh, here, you know, you have your choice generally of a, a large single family home or a mid-sized single family home. You know, we're often told that that's, that represents the preference of the market. Like the market has spoken. Everybody wants a single family home. Your report kind of calls that thinking into question, doesn't it? Um, so we looked at a lot of recent surveys, um, and those are finding that Americans are kind of going away from this traditional ideal. Um, the children of the baby boomers are not, they want to live in, the millennials want to live in areas where they don't need a car as often. Um, and we have an aging population of seniors who may not want to live in these areas uh, where they have to drive to get to the services they need. They want to be in a walkable neighborhood where they can easily access the amenities and services they need in their daily life. Um, so this walkability is becoming a key desire for Americans. Um, additionally, um, a recent Brookings Institution study found that this walkability enhances the economic viability of areas. Um, so amenity-rich and connected, uh, convenient communities are economically appealing. Uh, they found that the walkability of an area increases the perfect price of residential and commercial spaces. So the walkability of a neighborhood is increasing its value. Um, this is this shows that there is a demand for this type of development, um, and also means that many people might be priced out and pushed elsewhere. And it doesn't mean that uh, you know most of America won't you know continue to live in single-family homes. They will, right. but it's but it is a but but we have such an imbalance of supply. From what the demand is because of the uh, the creation of single family homes, you know, over the years. So that the it's so there's, so there's a couple of things going on. Uh, you know, one is just the you know the changes in in demographics are going to mean that there's going to be uh, you know you know less and less demand for kind of the larger single family homes and more demand for you know for smaller units from you know retiring baby boomers from people in their 20s and 30s who are getting married later. Um, and who are looking for, uh, you know, for places where they, uh, you know, they don't have to drive as often, can live closer to the types of amenities they're they're looking for. Um, but the, you know, the, you know, the finance rules also help shape it. It's just, uh, you know, it, it's much easier for a bank to approve a loan for a single-family home than it is to, uh, you know, to approve something which is, you know, which is part of a uh, of a mixed-use development, you know, they're just they're you know they're more complicated. It requires more uh, you know more you know more time on the part of the banks and funders for it. So uh, you know, so even if there's so it, it even if there is kind of increasing demand for some of these, it can uh, you know part of the cost difference that you're seeing when you go and look at these different types of homes are because. The financing is much more difficult to get for, uh, you know, for some of the more expensive projects. We're in the middle of this kind of crazy uh, election cycle, or the middle. We're just getting started, actually. <laughs> uh, it seems like it's been going on for a long time. I, I the the topic that is the center of your report is kind of wonkish, kind of, uh, yeah. you know, dealing with some arcane kind of rules. This isn't something that's going to show up in some debate, uh, you know, over issues of the democratic or Republican parties. 
how important is this? I mean, if, if you were to step back and say, you know, average American, this is a pretty, you know, is this a pretty big deal? Is this something that they should be aware of and, and concerned with? I would say it's a, it's a pretty big deal um, in terms of if you, if you think about it, creating more housing choices for Americans. I mean, that's really what, uh, you know, what a lot of, of all of these financing rules are, are all about. It's creating a broader range of housing choices uh, that, uh, you know, so that people have a, uh, you know, can, can have options for, you know, where they want to live and where they want to move in different, uh, you know, at different periods of, of their life. It's a, so, it's, so it's about, uh, you know, if you're a, uh, you know, just, uh, you know, somebody who has graduated college and you're, uh, you have a lot of student debt and you kind of want to, want to, uh, you know, rent someplace affordable that, uh, you know, that is, you know, close to where you, where you work and where you want to gather with, with your friends, you know, this is, you know, this is one of the things that, uh, that prevents that from happening. Um, if you're, you know, somebody who is, uh, you know, living in, you know, one of the, you know, one of the many, uh, you know, distressed, you know, neighborhoods in America and you're looking for, uh, you know, for, uh, you know, better amenities, you know, kind of a higher quality, you know, housing stock, you know, this is one of the things that, uh, you know, that, that prevents it from happening. So I, I wouldn't expect, you know, kind of the issue of these specific rules to kind of come up in, uh, in political debates, but it's, uh, you know, but it, but it's definitely part of this larger issue that we're looking at, you know, both of, uh, creating housing choices for Americans and, you know, addressing, you know, the really entrenched poverty that we still have in, in much of the country. Clearly, this must cost billions of dollars to fix, right? I mean, we're, we, 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 we must be talking about something that would uh, require, you know, congressional action and budget battles and all that kind of stuff. Am, am I, I'm being facetious here, but can you, can you talk about some of the things that would, would need to happen to actually make some changes here? You know, actually it wouldn't cost a dime. Uh, you know, there is this, there's no, uh, uh, you know, you know, Money that has to be added to the pot to make this happen, um, and there's no uh, new legislation that would need to be passed. You know, these are, you know, regulations that uh, you know were were put in place by, um, you know, by, uh, you know, by, uh, you know, by HUD and by the other finance, uh, you know, housing institutions in in Washington, and you know they have the authority to, uh, you know, to revise those regulations. And I should say that you know this is you know uh, you know there there have been uh, you know kind of you know certainly a lot of attention there have been some uh, you know some relaxation of these of these rules recently so it's not that you know this has gone unnoticed uh, you know uh, you know there have been uh, you know kind of a number of organizations that have been uh, you know that have been talking about this for for a while uh, you know Congress of the New Urbanism Smart Growth America. Uh, National Housing Conference, uh, you know, Center for Neighborhood Technology, a number of organizations that have been, you know, really kind of raising this issue for, uh, you know, for, uh, you know, for many years. Uh, and I think that, you know, there is, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to change, you know, uh, you know, regulations, but, uh, but that's really what's, 
you know, all that's required to make this happen. So it's not, uh, it's, it's not, and it's, it's not any more taxpayer money that would go to this. It's actually using taxpayer money more efficiently. As kind of a closing thought, I, I wanted to ask the two of you to talk a little bit about what the world would be like, or you know, how, how things would be different if we made some of these simple changes to the rules. What what are some of the things that you would envision being possible then, or, or coming about? You know, I think that what we would uh, start to see happening is that. Uh, you know, a number, uh, you know, of neighborhoods that have been, uh, you know, where there is, you know, kind of, uh, you know, political will and community support for, uh, you know, for these types of, uh, you know, for these types of development uh, to happen for reinvestment in a neighborhood, you would, you would start to see the, you know, the, uh, you know, kind of the, uh, Kind of the, the the endless cycle that it seems there would uh, you know it takes ten years for these projects to get through or they go you know three years down the road and then they and then they never happen because you know you couldn't put put the pieces together for it and so you would start to see you know an acceleration of these types of uh, you know of these types of, of transformation in different neighborhoods so it's, it's really part of uh, you know of remaking much of uh, you know much of the, really the downtown of, uh, you know, the country. It's not really going to, ch- it's not going to change, you know, kind of the single family neighborhoods. Um, it's not really going to, you know, have a, a big impact on kind of the, you know, the dense center cities, but it's, but it's those, it's those, those struggling downtowns that really, uh, you know, would benefit most from this. So I think that's where you see the biggest transformation. Right. Um, and I also feel that, um, in addition to seeing investment in these struggling downtowns, I feel like this will encourage further housing development and might encourage the development of more affordable housing for other, for more people to ensure that these communities are able to um, revitalize and also support the existing members that are there. Christopher Jones and Sarah Serpice, I, I want to thank you for not only the work you've done on the report, but also for taking the time to to chat with us today. This is a, a really important issue, and I just appreciate your expertise and your time. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Chuck. We really Thank appreciate you. it. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Keep doing what you can to build strong towns. Talk to you again tomorrow. We need your help. If you think the Strong Towns message is important, don't keep it to yourself. Pass it on. You can get more information and sign up to be a member of Strong Towns at strongtowns.org. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit Agenda 21. Yeah. 